Hey guys, it's Leah B from Prestige Veteran Medical Consulting, U.S. Army veteran, physician assistant, and former compensation and pension examiner. So today is a really exciting day for me because I, this is the first time in a really long time that I've had somebody else jump on here and participate with me in one of these episodes. And I couldn't think of a better person to do this with than my buddy and fellow PA, um, Ben, Doc Askins. And so I would like, and Doc meeting Hey, he's the doc, right? Everybody talking <laughs> the doc, right? Um, so let's let's just jump in and and have you introduce yourself and tell me about yourself and your story. Yeah, yeah, I love that we're doing this during we're recording it at least during PA week. I just realized looking at the okay. calendar there, this is like official PA week stuff. That was like pies in the face back in the inner service physician assistant program. We'd have the week where you'd pie the instructors and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my name's Ben Askins, but all my favorite people call me Doc, which is confusing because I'm a PA, uh, mm -hmm. which means I have a medical license, but I'm not a doctor. Uh, and I have an honorary PhD, but that's actually more like a certificate because a, a Institute of Higher Learning thought I was cool. They give honorary PhDs out, which is crazy because you abbreviate it PhD with on H A O N afterwards. So it looks like you graduated with a PhD with honors, but it actually means I did no work at all and don't have a terminal degree. Like my whole story is equally as confusing as just trying to explain my name to people sometimes, right? And you probably get it a lot where people just call you doctor, Dr. Leah, Dr. Buckholz, doctor, whatever, because you're wearing the white coat and doing the job, right? Yeah, totally. I agree. And then also, like I was mentioning, when you're, you know, even as a medic, that's what you are. You're the doc. You're right. the and you're the doc, right? Yeah, yeah. So not only do you have that like doc that you just explained with your doctoral degree or your um your honorary degree, um, you are the doc when it comes to military exactly. medicine, right? So yep. um tell me a little bit about your history in military medicine as a PA. Yeah. So I uh, you were telling your story a bit and, you know, everybody likes to tell their war stories. And that's kind of the byline on my whole thing right now is that I'm the psychedelic science war storyteller. Cause, uh, I was a combat medic for a decade. I've been, in, I was only in the national guard. I enlisted into the national guard at 27 years old, a bit of a late bloomer. Don't say only because you're it's not only you're a badass. You were in the National Guard. Period. You're in the military. Yeah, I, I, they sold it to me as one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer, mm -hmm. which is what I sold to my wife, and she bought it, and I bought it, and the recruiter, you know, obviously was full of it because I've deployed a couple times, and uh, mm -hmm. that involves more than the weekends. But yeah, I had a whole brain mm -hmm. uh, when I joined. Most people join at seventeen or eighteen, and as you know, you don't fully neurodevelopmentally become an adult until twenty six or twenty seven. But with a whole brain. I decided to raise the right hand and enlist. I already had a bachelor's degree in, I had a double major in outdoor education and intercultural studies. So I could have, uh, you know, joined and commissioned as an officer, but I was raised by a SEER school instructor who was a Vietnam veteran that was an enlisted guy. And he was not at all impressed with the officers that he knew and kind of left that imprint on his son so that I said, you know what? I think I'd rather just be enlisted and do work than, uh, you know, be one of those rich college kids that goes in as an officer straight out of school or whatever. No hate and no shame on it, but that was kind of what I caught from, you know, my dad. And that was why I decided, I think I'm just going to enlist. And 
most mostly it was I was 27. I hadn't joined up. I'd done some pretty cool things in the civilian world, teaching wilderness emergency medicine and search and rescue and doing high angle rescue and the National Outdoor Leadership School. And it was just outdoors having a lot of fun. Got a bachelor's degree that, you know, was basically climbing rocks in other countries that didn't really turn into a career, unsurprisingly. And Decided to enlist uh, because it was really kind of felt like my last chance. So long as America was going to send our sons and daughters into harm's way, I felt like maybe I should do my part. And my part would be as a, as a combat medic. So I joined up and uh, served 10 years as a 68 whiskey. And then I was in the AGR program. Most people don't know what that is, but it's the active duty portion of the Guard and Reserve, which is the best kept secret in the military. Like it's the coolest there's somebody, you know, on an active duty post doing a full-time job with, you know, at a battalion level with 800, you know, soldiers that they're working and interacting with on a regular basis. And then there's somebody in the National Guard doing the same job that only has those 800 people there one weekend a month. Uh -huh. It kind of gets to work with this skeleton crew of their friends. It was all people that I deployed with. So we were all friends and you know, 28 days out of the month, we were just setting up drill and doing, you know, the, the admin work to support what was going to happen on those events. But it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. And the only thing that I would have left that job for was getting accepted into the inter-service physician assistant program or IPAP, mm -hmm. where you and I have both uh, run the gauntlet there, you know, the first phase being 16 months of like, it felt to me like being jumped into an academic gang, like they were just going to beat you down mentally with exams or something like you're not going to get beat up. But the only way they're going to let you into this phase two is if you can just run the gauntlet of taking so many exams and just drinking from the fire hose for so long. Uh, and, you know, I survived that and then went to my phase two was at uh, Fort Campbell, which is, you know, familiar territory for you. I'm from Kentucky. When you're from the guard, they try to send you to whatever phase two site is closest to your home state, which was nice uh, for me. And I liked Fort Campbell a lot. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm anticipating you were going to ask me about like how I got into mental health and how I got into psychedelic mm -hmm. science and some of that stuff. So I'll tell the story there starts during my phase two at uh, Fort Campbell. I was working, I, you know, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and I was intending to go into er emergency medicine coming out of IPAP and it was the middle of the summer. I was about halfway through phase two. I was in kind of my emergency medicine rotation, plus the extra hours that we were putting in um, around that. When I got a call from an old friend telling me about a mutual friend of ours that had died by suicide the day, be the day prior. Um, and it just gutted me. Like, I love that guy. We worked uh, AGR together. He was the XO for the battalion where I was. And, uh, you know, he had... He had some stuff that uh, he had, like the way I like to describe it is your memories have you. So he had some memories that just had a hold of him that he couldn't get a hold of them. And uh, they were kind of haunting him. And he, uh, you know, he had a family, he had kids and I was just kind of gutted, but I still had to go to work. Right. So I, I went to the emergency room the next day to work my shift and uh, a young woman uh, a spouse of someone in the 101st down there had was brought in via ambulance for and what appeared to be an intentional overdose. So she had taken, you know, everything in the, the medicine cabinet that she could find, which included, we found out later, clonidine, which I'm sure you know is a mm -hmm. 
a very problematic overdose to manage. Uh, but, you know, being a, a combat medic and having some experiences as street uh, EMT, even before going into the army, I, you know, jumped into the middle of everything and innovated her. And we, you know, as a team, obviously stabilized her and uh, she was going into, you know, uh, intensive care and being admitted into the, the hospital. So it feels like a win, right? Like, Hey, we got the tube in and like, it's a big deal to get a procedure at all. And, you know, PA school some of the time. And it's like, yeah, you know, like I'm feeling the adrenaline rush. And, uh, and then I went and y- you get a certain amount of freedom, at least at Fort Campbell as a PA student, you can kind of float a little bit in those sorts of situations. It's not like, you know, like each person had their own role that they had to be filling and I could kind of go and get an education from whichever one of them seemed the most interesting at the time. So I decided to go with uh, the chaplain to go and sit in with the the husband and the daughter. I uh, After my first deployment, when I went to Iraq in 2011, I actually used my GI Bill to get a Master of Divinity degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Louisville, Kentucky. So I just wanted to kind of like put on a different hat after like my hands are still kind of shaken from the adrenaline of, you know, uh, dropping the tube and trying to help this lady out. And then I went with the chaplain to just sit with her husband and her daughter. And her husband was my age. Her daughter was the same age as one of my daughters. And it was just, it just gutted me all over again, like being confronted by, you know, and a suicide attempt the day after finding about losing a friend of mine. And it was, it was like something inside me just cracked open. And I don't, uh, I don't talk about it a whole lot because sometimes I get emotional when I do talk about it because I loved my friend and I miss him to this day, you know, but I, I just sat in that room and I, I thought to myself, I'm going to do something about this. I don't know what, like, I had no clue. I didn't know anything about, you know, psychiatry or mental health or any of that stuff. But I was like, I hate that this happens in the world and I don't understand it. And I'm going to do what I can about it. So I finished, uh, you know, phase two. And I had a friend in in Louisville who was a psychiatrist who was uh, kind enough to hire me straight out of school into private practice uh, psychiatry and kind of school me up and and teach me the ropes there. Not, you know, I didn't know much about it. a lot of that stuff. I wound up doing my uh, sort of research project in PA school on the pharmacogenomics of antidepressants just because I wanted to mm-hmm. get kind of up on the latest and greatest science there. So I graduated from phase two in January of 2020, passed the pants in February of 2020. And I'm sure mm-hmm. you and all of your audience remember what happened in March of 2020. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, COVID happened and the world shut down. And that's a really weird time to start an actual medical career with an actual medical license. Right. And I had, uh, I had started my own business. So I, own a company called Advanced Practice Providers LLC, where I provide physician assistant services and training and education and consulting and all of those sorts of things. Uh, But it was very brand new at that point. So I was a 1099 contractor at that office. I wasn't an employee. I had, you know, benefits through the guard and stuff. So I was protected in that regard. But, uh, you know, it was a difficult time to see patients. We had to switch from what was entirely an in-person medical practice to a uh, telehealth platform. And I had to figure all of that stuff up. And it was really just me and my friend, the physician, sort of in the office every day, social distancing from each other and trying to figure out how to keep the lights on in the place. And um, 
part of the practice that he had been providing because he was a he's a really cutting edge doc who pays attention to the the latest research he had in-house uh, a ketamine infusion room where he was doing ketamine uh, assisted therapy for severe chronic depression and ptsd mm-hmm. um so i kind of learned the ropes i you know you get familiar with it as an anesthetic as a combat medic and then in pa school it's mm-hmm. you know such a common medicine at high doses for putting somebody to sleep to take their appendix out when you need to um, and then at really low doses for analgesia for pain control but then there's this sort of sub anesthetic range where there's some amazing things that can be done about acute suicidality and uh, chronic depression and trauma that I, I got to learn sort of on the job training from him in maybe the worst possible circumstances, right? Because it was a time when you could have considered hospitalizing somebody to have been a death sentence, right? Somebody comes to you acutely suicidal and you want to, you know, put them on a 72 hour hold or something along those lines, but then you're sending them to a hospital where there's, you know, a ton of people on ventilators and, uh, you know, everybody's overwhelmed there already. Everybody's on diversion there already. So there was a, you know, a small group of people who, uh, I had the honor and the opportunity to just provide help for and to help sort of make it all the way through the pandemic without, you know, losing anybody to, to mental health emergencies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a stressful time for sure. Uh, you know, I had to take out small business association loans just to kind of stay in the black and, and make ends meet uh, because of how tight things were. And it was right around the time that I wound up getting out of the red and into the black that I got a notification of sourcing that my uh, battalion, the infantry battalion here in Kentucky was going to go to Kosovo for the K4 mission. And I was going to be the battalion surgeon, uh, going along on that trip. So I had to kind of shut everything down as far as the business goes and get my family ready for another deployment. And then, uh, head over to Europe for about, it wound up being, you know, with Primo about eight months, about six months in country. I came, uh, it actually was a really good experience for me. I, you know, it was, it was a full circle sort of thing. Like, uh, you had described recording on my podcast earlier where, uh, I got to be a mentor to a lot of young medics in a way that I never really had because I came up in a military police company and, or a military mm-hmm. police battalion. And I was out on the line as a medic, but by MTO, the MPs don't have a PA. So I didn't have anybody over me. I was the kind of senior medic for the whole battalion i was kind of the highest ranking military person which is sort of scary given that like alc was as high as my medical education went at the time or whatever um but i came back from that deployment uh and went straight into i had uh the opportunity to go to the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies mdma assisted therapy for ptsd training program so i uh came home late summer of 2022. And in the fall, I went through that training program and added that to the, uh, you know, the already fairly extensive experience that I had providing ketamine assisted psychotherapy for folks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was, uh, an eye-opening experience. It was, it was great training. I really enjoyed it a lot. It's like the polar opposite of army training in a whole bunch of ways. So I wound Mm -hmm. up just kind of sitting and listening a lot and learning from a lot of different people and a lot of different perspectives. And I loved, uh, absolutely everyone in my cohort. It was an amazing time, uh, to participate in that training. So then, um, yeah, I got through with the training. You get certified, but, um, I'm not a provider of that yet. I need to have two supervised uh, P 
period, there's needs to be two patients that I provide, uh, the, the therapy for while being supervised by someone more experienced. And then I'll be able to, with my partner here in Kentucky, she's also gone. My, uh, my supervising physician, not my like romantic partner or whatever, you know, business partner, uh, that will be able to, uh, provide, we're some of the first prescribers in the state of Kentucky to have that training. So when slash if it gets rescheduled by the FDA to provide MDMA assisted therapy next year, we'll be kind of on the front edge of doing that here in Kentucky anyway. Yeah, so that's that's super interesting. And that's one of the things I was going to ask you about a little later on, but I might as well bring it up now. Um, so with MDMA, um, from my understanding, it's like in phase four clinical trials. Is that correct? So uh, they've they've run all the trials, right? And now they're gonna they're hoping it's Q two maybe of next year of twenty twenty four to have it rescheduled by the FDA from a schedule one to a schedule two med, and then they'll roll into the phase four stuff. Yeah. So do you? What do you think that? So this is really exciting. So um, I'm gonna let you kind of touch on this a little bit more about how you know therapeutically what is the. Uh, mechanism by which people are thinking this drug is going to help people with their inner relationship, you know, issues in a clinical setting and how likely do you think it is for it to get rescheduled? Yeah, it, it seems like there's enough momentum behind it that it, you know, it will be rescheduled sometime next year. And the, the clinical trial data kind of speaks for itself. It's, in a whole different class from anything else in psychiatry at this point. Like you look at the phase uh, three clinical trial data and it's about two thirds of the people who have, you know, what we would call chronic complex PTSD, just some of the, the toughest childhoods or just some of the most difficult circumstances to just have been living under for most of their lives who, you know, on one of the more rigorous uh, scales, the caps five scale, have their, you know, PTSD ratings are as high on the charts as they can get. And after what winds up being around, not to get too far down into the weeds on the details of how they run the trial, but it's around three to six months of therapy with a co-therapy dyad where you have three therapy sessions in preparation and then a medicine session that lasts about eight hours because that's, you know, MDMA has a relatively long half-life and you're in this, uh, you know, sort of psychedelic space during the therapy on those days. And then you have three cycles of that where you do three more prep slash integration sessions and another medicine session, three more prep integration sessions, and then a medicine session in the trial. They do that three times, right? Which could take three to six months, depending on schedules. At the end of it, about two thirds of participants in the treatment arm no longer meet the diagnostic criteria. They're below the cutoff threshold for having PTSD at all, which we can't call it a cure. We call it remission, right? Because we're careful about the way that we talk about these sorts of things. But then people tended to stay in remission for upwards of six to 12 months afterwards. So this isn't a daily medicine. This isn't a weekly medicine. This isn't a monthly medicine. It has the potential to be just a few times and then you could be done with PTSD for the foreseeable future. It's the not just the robust efficacy that is interesting. It's also the durability of those effects that make MDMA the ideal psychedelic molecule to be rescheduled first among all of the research data that we have available to us about what is in the pipeline after that. Does that answer your question? It, it does. I think just a little bit more. And, and I know we got to move on from this, but, um, you know, unlike ketamine, and, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong on this. So ketamine, I think, and we're going to talk about that. 
um, there is a significant like what is it doing with GABA and what is it doing with the brain to help, um, you know, change things structurally and help people, you know, improve is MDMA is the mechanism by which this is actually helping people just by decreasing barriers to them actually communicating and addressing it. Is it more, is it equally a chemical thing as a, we're going to get through some treatments and talk about things that we normally wouldn't talk about because we're able to have those euphoric effects of openness, et cetera. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So not to get like real deep in the weeds on the science, essentially what MDMA does in the central nervous system is suppresses fear circuitry. It turns down activity in the amygdala and in some of the um, circuitry around it and then turns up love mm -hmm. in the brain so that you can kind of approach the worst experiences of your life at a distance from them and have a certain amount of compassion for yourself and for everyone else in those circumstances that is incredibly difficult to engage in mm -hmm. uh, in a different way. You can get there. You know, there's ways to get into these quote unquote non-ordinary states of consciousness through breath work, through extreme exposures yeah. to different temperatures, through mindfulness, meditation. Like there's a whole bunch of ways to get there, but uh, not maybe as reliably and as thoroughly as with MDMA. So you turn down fear and you turn up love and you wind up people, uh, you know, in the training, we watched a lot of videos and then people who had been uh, therapists in the clinical trials shared extensively about their experiences. And what happens to a lot of folks is they just run through a traumatic memory network. It seems like they have kind of an index trauma uh, that, it's unpredictable what that might be, but then they kind of run through a whole bunch, like a web of mm -hmm. all of these memories of all of these terrible things or awful things or all of these losses and griefs and sufferings and are able to knit them back together meaningfully in ways that are just so much faster, you know, and it gets described as, you know, 10 years of therapy in a day or 20 years of therapy in a day, because it, it genuinely is. It's not an exaggeration. Like you're just running through this stuff. There's this funny story that they shared with us from some of the, you know, uh, pre-war on drugs era 1960s research that was done that was used as the basis for designing some of these clinical trials. There were a bunch of therapists together that in a group setting had taken MDMA and then were sitting around in a circle trying to just play with like different therapeutic approaches to things. And one of them said, let's try to think of the worst thing that we could possibly think of right now, like the scariest, saddest thing. And somebody else goes, let's all imagine that our mothers died. <laughs> Everybody sits in a circle and imagines having a dead mother. And it's just silent for several minutes. And then like one person speaks up and says, it's not that bad. <laughs> And everybody just kind of like laughs it off or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's a funny story, but you're able to kind of access the sorts of things that would terrify you, the sorts of things that okay. uh, keep you awake at night, the sorts of things that keep you hyper vigilant in a crowd, the sorts of things that, you know, are this cluster of symptoms that currently we call post-traumatic stress disorder for the, what that's worth. It directly affects the biological mechanisms underlying a lot of that suffering and then allows you the opportunity to do the therapy around it. So I always, whenever I get the chance to talk about this stuff, like to point out that it is MDMA doing the assisting and the therapy is where the work gets done. It's not therapy assisted 
psychedelic medicines, right? Because you can you can take these medicines, you know, recreationally, or you can take them in a therapeutic context and work against them the entire time. If you're not doing the therapy to get ready for it, if you're not doing the therapy to integrate it afterwards, you can't expect to have the sorts of, you know, robust and durable outcomes that you see in the clinical trials there. So the therapy you know, therapy first, therapy last, therapy the whole way throughout. And then it's augmented by medicines like MDMA and ketamine and et cetera. Totally. Um, well, thank you for your insight. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with this and follow you and hear because you're probably one of the first ones to put information out and, and just see how this can affect our um, veteran community going forward if, if this change is made. And, um, you know, but okay, Doc, so we left off just a few minutes ago talking about MDMA. So can you give me some insight into your experience with ketamine, um, how that helps with chronic pain, mental health conditions, where it's at with getting um, potentially looked at for insurance benefits? Will that ever happen? Um, and on label use for PTSD, depression, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned on label use. And there are a handful of people who come to see me for their depression or traumatic symptoms after having like dental work done or breaking a bone and getting treated in the emergency room. And they're like, I got knocked out and I asked them what they gave me uh, in the dentist's office. And they said ketamine. And I've been undepressed for a week for the first time in 10 years. So I figured I'd come see you and see if you could help me out with something. So it, it happens where the medicine gets used as anesthesia from time to time. And then somebody figures out, Hey, maybe this could help me with, uh, you know, what I'm struggling with in terms of mental health stuff. Right. <clears throat> and ketamine has a whole bunch of different mechanisms of action. What's really interesting is it has this, uh, effect on acute suicidality that's really unique that I think ought to be evaluated for a lot more use in emergency rooms than there's still places where, you know, like we're giving the old B-52 to people to knock them out or just, you know, high doses of atypical or excuse me, typical first generation antipsychotics and stuff. And I think we can kind of develop past that with some high dose ketamine potentially um, that could help a, a lot of folks out. You, uh, the way that ketamine works seems to be dosage dependent, right? High doses, anesthesia, knock somebody unconscious for surgery. Low doses, you know, and low dose meaning, you know, somewhere in the like 0.2 to 0.4 milligram per kilogram range mm -hmm. as an infusion for chronic pain. There's some data to back that up. It's some of, it's not great. There's not been any great clinical trials that I'm aware of in the chronic pain management arena. The data is just kind of widely scattered all over the place there and almost, you know, barely rises above the level of anecdotal. That being said, I remember a patient being brought in and put into, uh, you know, a ketamine coma for hours a day for complex regional pain syndrome. Whenever I was down in my phase two at Fort Campbell, they just admitted him and, uh, you know, that inflammatory reaction that he, he was having up and down his whole arm got, you know, doused the flames with ketamine because ketamine is intensely anti-inflammatory. There's a lot of different, what we call phenotypes or the types of depression out there that based on the different symptoms and the different history, you try to parse out what's going on there. And there may be one that has a neuroinflammatory component to it. And it's hard to treat neuroinflammation with much, but ketamine is one medicine that's able to just drive down all of the, you know, inflammatory cytokine productions uh, that's taking place. That's not really the main mechanism of action that 
uh, steals all the headlines in terms of mental health stuff, but it's a piece of, of what's going on with ketamine. And then in the about half a milligram per kilogram to one, you know, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram in the literature is this quote unquote sub anesthetic dosing range that we wind up using for treating depression and PTSD and sometimes anxiety. And there's some uh, emerging data in eating disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder and alcohol use disorders and um, uh, several other kinds of addictions um, where it it has it winds up being kind of a multi-tool in the combat medics bag it's a multi-tool for pain management and for anesthesia and then in the psychiatrist's office it could also be a multi-tool for a, a wide range of conditions the issue with ketamine is it's a question mark in my experience in terms of the durability of efficacy i'll have people who i see twice a year for a ketamine infusion because they do great on just twice a year. And then there's folks who need to come in on a weekly basis. And I cannot for the life of me figure out what the difference is between the two to try to help everybody get to where they only need this once or twice a year. Right. Um, I had one guy who had, um, ulcerative colitis and anytime he was having, he'd start to have a colitis flare. He knew he was going to go into a depressive cycle. Mm -hmm. So he would just come see me preemptively. And it was about twice a year. He'd have a, you know, a colitis flare up and he'd get a ketamine infusion for knowing that he was going to have depression coming his way real shortly after that. And then, the, you know, I've had patients who've tried everything, multiple courses of electroconvulsive therapy, deep brain stimulators, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation, a whole bunch of things. And they landed on ketamine as being the only thing that would work to manage, you know, to make life manageable for them. But again, that they needed it pretty frequently, more frequently than they wanted, more frequently than I wanted, but it was the thing that was keeping them alive. So we just kind of figured out how to do that together. You asked about uh, reimbursement and insurance too. So yes, because ketamine uh, is being used off label, it's hard to get reimbursement. Although I know of clinics who have used the code CPT96369 and gotten reimbursement, which is like a prophylactic infusion mm -hmm. uh, code. And there's the potential maybe for that opening up wider with uh, there's some advocacy being done around that by the ketamine task force. Captain uh, Kimberly Juraveski, who's a retired Air Force captain, is pushing for a lot of uh, that, you know, to be changed in the insurance industry. And then um, there's a whole host of other advocacy groups. Osmind is a, an EHR that does a, a bit of research and also tries to do some advocacy around that. Good people working there for sure. Um, but the, uh, and then there's also the prescription form that was recently developed by Johnson and Johnson of an inhalational form of the, uh, left-handed enantiomer S-ketamine mm -hmm. uh, and the brand name is Spravato, but there's a lot going on with Spravato that I won't dive into uh, on our podcast here. But yeah, so there is a brand only version of it, but there's a lot that goes into being a prescriber there because it has a REMS program associated with it and a lot of monitoring and those sorts of things. So getting insurance reimbursement, not uh, likely, but you can get reimbursed for 
therapy around the infusions and there's there's ways to make it a bit more affordable and manageable because i know access is the issue in a lot of uh, regions it's a cash pay situation and it tends to be fairly expensive to cover it's not a you know like a it's not a great money making scheme if you were going to pick a, an ideal medical business i would recommend go, not starting a ketamine clinic mm -hmm. because covering the overhead and staff and all of the other things that you would need to do with only ketamine as the the thing that you're doing would be incredibly difficult apart from running like a ketamine mill where you've just got like 10 people hooked up to an IV and it's basically an infusion clinic, not a mental health clinic at that point. It's hard to cover the mar the margins if you're not just doing general psychiatry and using ketamine as a tool. If you're just a ketamine clinic, it's hard to do. So then that winds up driving up the price, right? And then it might, it, you know, narrows down access and a lot of the people who need it the most can afford it the least. And how do you kind of thread that needle? It's not an easy question to answer. It's way above my pay grade anyway. Sure. Well, it's, it's definitely tough, but definitely a great, um, you know, some great different alternative treatments we've talked about today. There were some other ones that I wanted to get into, but for sensitivity of time, we'll do that on our next visit <laughs> yeah, yeah. together. But I, I just think that, um, you know, letting the public know and letting veterans have more education on some of these things will open doors to potentially receiving different types of treatments now, or maybe in the future, like you mentioned with MDMA, hopefully making some changes next year. But in the meantime, can you please tell our um, viewers here on YouTube and our listeners on the podcast um, where they can listen to your podcast, yeah. a little bit about your book and just, perhaps where they can reach out to you if they have questions, things like that. And we'll drop this in, in our comments too on, on this video so that people can have hyperlinks. Yeah, cool. Um, I, if you want to find all of my stuff, it's on my website, antiheroesjourney.com, which is the title of the podcast, the Antiheroes Journey podcast. And then the name of my book is The Antiheroes Journey, The Zero with a Thousand Faces, which is sort of a riff on the famous uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, the monomyth, the hero with a thousand faces. It's this uh, cycle that Joseph Campbell was a scholar of American uh, literature and mythology. And he was just kind of like the Encyclopedia Britannica of ancient religions and wisdom and myths. And he picked out this cycle that he called the, the monomyth or the hero cycle uh, that every good story that you've ever heard kind of fits this pattern from, you know, the ancient you know, Greek mythology with Odysseus and the Greek gods and Perseus and the Iliad and the Odyssey down through, you know, Star Wars and Luke Skywalker. There's these four stages of call, separation, initiation, return. It's the, you know, dragon, princess, warrior, castle sort of like mixture, you know, there's and then there's a heroine's journey book that's been written. That's great because it kind of flips the script between what's been largely a you know a masculine hero's journey story and taking things in the more feminine direction but it's still this sort of cycle you know gendered in one way or another um and my take on all of that is that the hero's journey is a lovely children's story but that we all would benefit from growing up and that it's time to evolve past the hero's journey into the anti-hero's journey. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to see yourself as the hero of your own story, that has implications. Number one is you're not always acting like a hero. So you should be honest with yourself about that. Number two is every hero 
uh, implies that there's a villain out there. So you're going to have to make somebody into the bad guy if you're going to be the hero, whether they are or they aren't, right? And uh, the honest truth is, if I followed you around for a week on Monday, maybe you look like a hero. And on Tuesday, you look like a villain. And on Wednesday, you're just a victim. And Thursday, you're a bystander. And Friday, you don't even get out of bed. So you're like something in the background. You're not even playing a part, right? And that is something that we have to integrate about ourselves is that it's not as simple as this either or hero or villain way of seeing ourselves. So in the book, I call the book a trauma integration guide and my life story in 150 pages with pictures. So it you know, <laughs> won't be boring, but uh, it's sort of my way of outgrowing the hero's journey. And I think you could outgrow it as well in your own way. I don't recommend anybody try to be me or be like me or do any of this there my way. But if you read the book, I kind of make points about how you can do this in your way so that you can be fully Leah and I can be fully Ben. And I think that's the next step in the evolution of humanity is to move out of these children's stories about heroes and villains and move into recognizing that life is a lot more complex than that. And when we start to do that, then we can have a whole lot more compassion on ourselves. We can have a whole lot more compassion on our enemies. And a lot of the things that are at a heart at the heart of all of the world religions, like love for neighbor, uh, you know, care for the oppressed, all of those sorts of things can flourish instead of, you know, having wars over exactly whose God is the right God, which is what we've done for thousands of years. And I think it's time to move past all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, um, you know, some, some definitely some deep stuff and I appreciate <laughs> resonate with it. Right. Um, yeah. in my own way, we talked about some of that on, on your podcast, but, um, being the most real version of yourself, good and bad and, you know, growing from that. Right. So thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to continuing to grow our, um, our friendship and our collegial relationship. And do you have any last words for anybody out here? Uh, no, I, I really just was honored that you'd invite me to come hang out with you for a little while. I had a lot of fun uh, in the conversation and I look forward to every opportunity we get to interact down the line. Okay, great. All right. Well, um, thanks for watching everybody. Drop some comments if you have any questions and we will be sure to respond, um, as soon as possible. Uh, all right. Thanks again.